Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, James Meek on his latest novel, To Calais, In Ordinary Time. James Meek is the author of six novels, including The People's Act of Love, which was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize and won both the Royal Society of Literature on Darty Prize and the Scottish Arts Council Award. It has been published in more than 30 countries. His last novel, The Heart Broke In, was shortlisted for the Costa Book Award, and he has also written two collections of short stories and two books of non-fiction, Private Island, which won the 2015 Orwell Prize, and Dreams of Leaving and Remaining. He's also a contributing editor to the London Review of Books and contributes regularly to The Guardian and The New York Times. And James's latest novel, which we're going to be talking about today, is To Calais in Ordinary Time. James, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Tell me, first of all, how you would describe this novel. <laughs> That's an interesting question, because uh, I feel it's, it's two things, really. It's, um, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a story. It's a story about people which happens to be set hundreds of years ago. Because it's set hundreds of years ago, uh, a lot of people have said, oh, yes, this is historical fiction. Well, in a way, of course, I can't deny it is historical fiction. But at the same time, I don't really believe in in genre, uh, except as a marketing device. So for me to fully accept the idea that this was historical fiction, to me, from my sort of natural way of thinking about it would imply that I, I'd sat down and thought, OK, I'm going to write a historical novel now. That would be the first point, and then what shall I write about? And and it wasn't like that. It was just this um, this story interested me. I suppose the other thing that you could say it is is uh, something of a, a test of language, um, a, a test of myself, but also a, a test of, of the English language. Um, hopefully not a test for the reader, um, because I, I think that despite my uh, pushing the language to to the limit, um, I, I do think it's comprehensible. But, you know, the first thing that you come up against when you decide to write a novel set in England in the Middle Ages is what kind of English are the characters going to speak? Uh, indeed, what kind of English is the narration going to be? Uh, and after thinking about it, I decided that the the only true way was was to represent in modern English 
the three forms of, uh, of of language that existed at that time: the Latin, French, uh, and English. So they're kind of very much the the three languages of England in the 14th century. And rather than trying to to create some something really archaic uh, and old world sounding, uh, my starting point was modern English, and I, I set out to um, to tease apart those parts of modern English that are more English English, more Germanic, those parts of uh, English that are more French and those parts that are more that are more Latin. So, I mean, that's in, in some senses, you could say it's it's um, it's an experiment. Uh, but at the same time, it is a story. It's a story about people who are being put under extreme stress by an apocalyptic event but also about people who believe themselves simply to be setting out on a geographical journey from a small village, in the case of most of them, to uh, to Calais. So they do make that physical journey, but uh, as we as we follow them, it, it becomes a different kind of journey. It becomes a a journey to to otherness for people who are discovering that. That what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, uh, what it means to be uh, a peasant, what it means to be a noble, what it means to be a priest, what it means to be literate, what it means to be illiterate, what it means to to perform in play, and what it means to to perform in the real world. Uh, so this journey to a place becomes a journey to identity. And of course, all of those positions in life, be you know priest, noble, peasant, are all about to be shaken up by that by that catastrophe, by the Black Death. And I I wanted to talk about to what extent this story relates to your non-fiction books because you know this is a it's a book about an impending catastrophe affecting ordinary people with Calais in it so lots of people have described this as a book about Brexit but I was also thinking about you know the fact that we talk about the Black Death as as one of those things that shook up the aristocracy you know the old style aristocracy and the ownership of the land and meant freedom for a lot of workers but of course we only have to read Private Island to be reminded that these people still own most of the country anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think the three estates are still with us in the way that we live our lives. There, there is still a, a division of, of humanity, and this is not just um, an English thing, a division of humanity in, into the, the more reflective part of society that, that deals with abstract ideas, the propertied, powerful people, uh, the people who, who, who give the orders, uh, and, and the workers, uh, the people who who are living life on a more day-to-day basis and they I, they have neither power nor the time and resources for for a great deal of abstract reflection but i would hate this this book to be seen as some kind of um tract some kind of uh, treatise it's not that at all it is it is a a novel it is a story um it it aspires to um as as all novels must to the status of myth, uh, and in that sense, uh, it moves away from from nonfiction. Uh, and also, while I wrote it, there were uh, it took me quite a long time to write. So, uh, a lot of uh, well, not a lot of, but all the countries that have been most important to my life, namely Scotland, England, Russia, and Ukraine, 
all have been convulsed by identity crises, which which continue to this day. Um, and that probably did leave some, some mark on the book. Uh, it's also true that the genesis of the book was my thinking about the relationship between anticipation of, of the destruction caused by climate change and anticipation of the plague. Because one of the things that you realise when you start to look into it a little bit is that when I first started thinking about this, I had this idea that the people didn't know it was coming. But of course, they did, uh, in a way. And the, uh, there's still that kind of lingering trace of, of the, the climate change idea in the sense that you have sort of plague sceptics. Yeah, there are um, literally plague and, deniers. And that the, the priests are something like scientists. Yeah. In sense. On the one hand, they're, they're telling people, look, this is going to happen, believe us. Uh, but at the same time, they're trying to take what, in, those, in their terms, are practical uh, steps. And of course, to, people to believe that and the they, police you know, are self-serving. And... Yes, yes, which they are. And, yeah. and um, you could even argue, if you wanted to be, um, you wanted to be tough on today's scientists, that um, as as well-intentioned as they may be, uh, there is something of that kind of uh, scolding aspect to, uh, to to the climate change movement. That that um, you you are sinners. Uh, you have you have uh, committed the sin of over overconsumption, overindulgence. So there's a relationship there as well. But but this is all leading up to me saying that I, I wouldn't want some kind of people to think that this was some kind of ideological thing. It's a story, and I think that whatever is happening in the world, whatever is our biggest preoccupation um, outside our our immediate lives and our families. If a novel comes along, then people will find the things in that book that chime with it. So if we were at war, then um, the, the more wary bits of the of the book would uh, would strike people um, as as resonant with with our times. And uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that people have said, oh, yes, Brexit. Um, oh, yes, climate change. Uh, but the strand of the book that deals with gender identity. That, to me, seems very, very much of our time. Um, and, and that could equally well be, be picked out. But I, I think the truth is that um, it's a rich book, as the world is rich. And it does, um, without wanting to sound immodest, it does contain multitudes. And so uh, everyone who wants to project a particular aspect of modernity onto it will probably find it there. And not least, it's you know it's a it's has elements of romance. It's an adventure story. It's gripping. It's violent. And yeah, it's it's entirely engrossing. And I want to go back to the language idea before we talk about the way that you've you know you've divided the story into basically three main characters who each who talk in a slightly different register, um, as you've already described the the sort of Germanic the the French the Latin versions of English just how you went about putting in that language because it is you're absolutely right it's not in any way you know you pick up this book and think okay so it's writ- a lot of it's written in ar- archaic language within pages you've forgotten that and it's absolutely gripping and the words archaic words for you know face or head or voice or whatever are entirely contextually used so it's quite obvious what you're getting at basically from the from the sentence and i wonder how like you make that seem easy but it obviously <laughs> wasn't it's interesting you say that because I, I do feel some... I've, I've had different responses because some, some uh, critics have said, 
oh yes, he decided to to write it in this uh, Middle English light, as if as if you could just turn a dial and and that was that was possible. Um, I've noticed that writers understand um, that it w- must have been extremely laborious to do it, and and it was. I mean, I, I think you could, in the sense of writing with one hand deliberately tied behind your back, it's not unreasonable to to compare it with. Um, with George Perrick's um, book where he, uh, he missed out um, all words that contained the letter E. It's not quite as extreme as that, but in the beginning, at least, um, I mean, it's, it's very nice to hear uh, people say, oh, yes, at the beginning it was difficult, but um, I quickly got into the swing of it, because that's, that's what I hoped, but also because it was the same for me writing it. It was just mm-hmm. like over a lot, much longer period of time. I, I taught myself this kind of new, these three new versions of, of modern English by trying to exclude, depending on who was, who was speaking, um, what, uh, you know, trying to exclude everything that wasn't Latin, everything that wasn't English, everything that wasn't, everything that wasn't French. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can now listen to, to any sentence and, and pick out, you know, instantly the, the, the bits that are um, of each language. Uh, and, and sometimes the words seem strange in my mouth and I, I suddenly become conscious of the, of the Frenchness of the word mm. language and of the word sentence, for example. These abstract concepts that ordinary people would not necessarily have used. In terms of actually doing it, it was quite complicated, uh, especially since I had to write a lot of it outside the house for various reasons. So I was sitting there with the book where I was actually, the notebook where I was actually writing the text uh, because I, I write longhand with ink. And then the, the laptop in front of me with, with all the various different reference sources in front of me. And, and I had my own little dictionary. Of course, most Middle English um, dictionaries go from Middle English to Modern English, but I did it the other way around. I, I created my own little Modern English to Old English dictionary. And yes, it was it was difficult and puzzling as well when you come across words like touch, for example, for which there does seem to be no exact English equivalent, uh, sort of Germanic equivalent, and which is perhaps why touch was taken up. You have feel, you have reach, you have grasp, but touch with that sense of lightness and that you're not just um, placing your fingers on something, but you're you're sort of sensing its quality without trying to disturb it. It's it's a terrible word to lose from great sections of the book. And but in doing that, there's something wonderful about it because you you do start to think about these uh, these small words that we take for granted, and you begin to to understand what it means if 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 they're taken if they're taken away, uh, and to have to to work in that dynamic way with with the the richness and the redundancy of the English language is um, initially difficult but eventually quite exhilarating. And you're able to have fun with it in a lot of places because I'm, I'm thinking of um, there's a point where Berna says to, to Madeline, are you afraid? And she says, what? I don't, oh, you mean afraid? Yeah, I am. And there's, I don't know how coincidental this is, but like the words for um, let's see, um, you know, a, a priest giving, you know, benediction to a person and a thief to steal and to have sex. We're all like, 
very there was like was it Swive and Shrive and they're all like very similar. Yes, yes and it yes. seemed almost like you know you were making some sort of connection between. Right, those yes, things. that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Yes, Shrive. I mean, Shrift, Shrive, and Shrift and Shriven is still with us in the mm. in the expression short shrift. He got short shrift. His confession uh, was wasn't as long as you might have expected, and um, yeah, I, I I did have to use context a lot um, and hope that people would would get it. And uh, at one point very early on, uh, Bernadine, the main uh, aristocratic character, says to her cousin, uh, yes, they don't really speak properly here. Uh, they say, and then I, I had a chance to, to do three words to translation as if she was just saying it to her cousin. You know, they say, they say bead instead of prayer and they say steven instead of voice. Uh, so I thought, OK, I can allow myself three little translations to help the reader along. And then that's it. You're on your own after this. <laughs> I mean, something that happens as the book goes on is that the language starts to change in, in subtle ways because in the beginning it's very stratified and you have the... Uh, it's not just that they're speaking different forms of English but also that everything that the clerical character um, tells you is written down. Everything that you know about the aristocratic characters is from what they tell you because you don't get access to, to what they're actually thinking. And again, with the, with the peasants, it's either what they say or, or what they do. Uh, so I was trying to reflect these different modes of being, the mode of, the mode of reflection, the mode of power and um, command, and, and the mode of getting on with things and expressing yourself through, through doing. But as the book goes on, and the, particularly as the... Uh, the plague begins to begins to bite, as it were. The characters, of course, are forced closer and closer together, and you have these sort of mixed chapters where, as you say, uh, the more aristocratic character is, is being forced to moderate her language um, in order to uh, to speak to her minions, and so there's a kind of teaching process going on between them as well. And and you know, of course, right from the beginning, Bernardine is using these these phrases, some of which have come down to us and we still use, which are one English and one French, hence the expression right and proper, for example, right, the English, proper, the French. Uh, and we still say right and proper as if it was a sort of emphasis, rather than um, I'm going to make sure you understand me, so I'll say it in English and French uh, as well. So she uses a lot of kind of doubles like that. But one of the problems I had with the language was to try and avoid pastiche, to try and avoid places where other writers had trodden before. Um, so I couldn't use the phrase Middle Earth, for example, which is a perfectly normal Middle English way of, of saying the earth between heaven and, and hell. Um, I couldn't use that because then people think, oh, yes, Tolkien, sword and sorcery. And I couldn't use thee and thou, which, again, is, is perfectly proper for, those, for English in those days, because then it would seem like some kind of 19th century medieval pastiche. So I had to find ways of reflecting the, the power balance between the aristocrats and the peasants as the, uh, as the book went on. Well, interesting you raised there the idea of sort of 19th century medieval pastiche, because I want to go through the three main characters in turn, and we'll perhaps talk about the, you know, the perspective. You've already mentioned the perspective. Each character has a slightly different perspective and a sort of narrative position, but also some of the themes around them. And Bernadine, Berna, who is the, the aristocratic character, she's basically running away from an arranged marriage and, and sort of gets taken up by this party journey into Calais. 
And she's obsessed with this book, um, Le Roman de la Rose, which is a, a sort of... Is it a real book? Oh, yes. Yeah. Very much so. so tell the, us what the, that was. The Romance of the Rose. It's, um, it was a, a medieval bestseller. I mean, in those days, there were no bestsellers, of course, because everything had to be written by hand, had to be copied by hand. But to the extent that there was a book that everyone who could read had read, it would have been The Romance of the Rose. Uh, it, it, it still exists in, in hundreds of editions. And it's a, a story written by two poets. Uh, one poet wrote the first part and died, and then another poet, both of them French, uh, wrote this piece. It was originally written in French, uh, and it's an allegory of love. At least it's supposed to be an allegory of love, and it begins as an allegory of love. And the first poet's work, uh, Guillaume de Lory, it is a rather charming but quite complicated allegory of love where a lover falls asleep and, uh, and dreams that he enters the Garden of Love. He falls in love with a rose that is both a literal rose and the personification of sexual desire and um, sexual fulfillment, but only if you pluck the rose. And everything in love, every aspect of, of the lover's life is personified by a character. So... There is love himself, there is Venus, there is jealousy, there is reason. And uh, as the, the second part of the, the book kicks in, the book becomes completely different. It becomes a much more cynical guide, a sort of seduction manual, really, for the would-be seducer. And uh, the sexual side becomes much more, comes much more to the fore. But throughout these two books, you have this particular element of the allegory which fascinated me uh, which is that between the lover and the rose apart from all these many personifications of, of feelings and complications there is this one figure which is a man and yet he is somehow also a woman his, his name in French is Belacoy which you can translate um, as, as warm welcome or, or fine reception. And uh, he is, is a man, but he's so close to the rose, it's almost as if he has the, the aspect of the rose. And in this, what, I, what fascinates me is in this incredibly ultra-chauvinist society of medieval Western Europe, you have here in the figure of warm welcome, uh, the rose's constant companion, you have this figure of the woman as, as friend, as a kind, caring, honest, thoughtful, intelligent human being who the lover would surely want to have as his best friend. And yet all he wants to do to the rose is, is to fuck the rose. And, and yet he can't initially separate these separate these two uh, any more than they already separated uh, so he's constantly trying to befriend um, warm welcome to exploit warm welcome but particularly in the early parts of the book you, you feel that he's uh, the two are really getting along well and and the rose is almost it's a shame the rose is there almost uh, that it's it's distracting from what could be something uh, very, uh, very beautiful and platonic. Uh, so that's quite a, um, a complex and interesting triangle and that, that keeps recurring uh, through the book. Well, I was going to say also, you know, Berno is, is obsessed with this sort of courtly love ideal of romance. Um, I guess that's sort of chipped away for her as well as, 
as the novel goes on, but it's also juxtaposed with the amorous adventures of Will, um, a, a number of scenes that are incredibly, <laughs> incredibly hot, I must say. <laughs> but even with people of, I won't give too much away, but, you know, of very different positions to himself, you know, the actual reality of what takes place in the bedchamber is, is not what Berta is reading in that book. Yes, yes, quite. <laughs> Uh, the thing that she um, holds on to until she can no longer hold on to it anymore is this idea that uh, that aristocrats are are special, um, that they are not simply lucky, but that the highborn um, are highborn because they are high people, and they can experience love and romance. Whereas mm. you know she thinks that that Will, the second character, he's a, a bound ploughman who becomes a you know part of this party of bowmen. Um, he has this, again, which we don't have to go into too much detail about it, but this romance with another character, Madeline. Mm. And as far as Bernard is concerned, these people are not even... There's a scene where... where her lover Lawrence is, is is basically explaining that you know these peasants they're like dogs they you know they just get distracted from one thing to another you know it might be the scent of a bitch it might be a nice bone um, but they they don't actually know what they're doing it's all instinct so they can't actually and she pities them because they can't actually feel romance or love in the way that an aristocrat can yes exactly um, and uh, and I think that is an attitude that persists to this day and going back to what we were talking about before the the reflections of of the modern age in in the book um it's it's not such an obvious thing because it's not a news issue it's our lives mm-hmm. it's the way that we are and the way that we live but something there is something about the way that we are and the way we live that i don't think we really like to talk about very much which is that there is a sense of people thinking, I have loved and I know how to love, but you don't. Uh, that there are people who who have finer feelings than others for whatever reason, perhaps because they're aristocrats or perhaps because they are artists um, and, and the non-artists um, are less susceptible to, to delicate emotions. I think that's a, that's a constant of, of society. But in some ways it's perhaps become more acute now than it ever was. Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to James Meek. We're talking about his latest novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time. Um, Thomas, the the third of the of the main characters, and as you've already mentioned, his his sections are basically him writing in a journal. He's he's sort of we get the information that he's relaying written down in a first person narrative. And there are points where I wondered if this was, you know, almost addressing the idea of fiction itself. In that there's one conversation that I'm thinking of where, again, without having to go into too much detail, there's a character Cess who has basically been kidnapped by this party from she's a french woman who's who's basically being held hostage by this group that they travel with and she basically tells him at one point that like yeah i could tell you what happened to me i could describe being raped and my father being murdered and all of this but you would then feel that you understood that or you could relay it and i wondered if you were almost addressing the audience then you know the reader at at that point in terms of you know you're telling this story about what happened. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a, a difficult moment, um, and and the whole to put um, for a male character to put a woman who has been raped in a book of any kind is is a difficult one, and uh, it, it, it touches, I suppose, a lot of these these very talked about issues now about who has the right to do people have the right to write about some things, not the right to write about others, and and I think on the one hand. Everyone should be able to write about anything, but it's just a question of how you do it, how you then approach it. Um, so if a, a male writer cannot put a woman who's been the victim of sexual violence in a book, then that seems like a, a bad and a divisive thing, which, which is not, which is moving away from an acceptance of the way the world is. But then how are you going to do it? And, and so I tried to do it in such a way that I wasn't poking around inside her head and I was gradually she finds her voice as the book goes on, and we see her story from various different angles. And yeah, that, I'm glad you picked up on that moment because it was it was important for me as well to to try and find a way, I suppose, of yes, exactly, of, of placing the the problem that particularly since this is a character who likes to analyze what's going on around him. In a way, he's the he's the reader's representative in the book he's closer to the reader partly because he is actually writing nobody else is writing uh, but also because he is telling you what he thinks directly and personally 
whoever he's writing his journal to, whoever he's writing his letters to, it's, it's, it's us. We're the, we're the readers. And so he's there to, to kind of reach out a hand for you if you're thinking, um, I don't really understand what's going on. Because he's actually trying to find out what's going on. <laughs> and he's telling you about it. But just exactly because he's in that situation, as he is aware, because he's a, he's a, a wise person, he, he's in danger of uh, digging too far and appropriating other people's stories. Um, so it's, it's at that point where he gets pushed back by, uh, by Cess, the French captive, uh, and, and she says, um, you think you're so clever, you feel you, you will have some kind of superior rights over my interpretation of, of what went on as soon as I tell it to you, so I'm not going to. Just before we finish, I'll get you to read us a bit, but just one more question. And we haven't talked about the Black Death that much, and, and I wondered about researching the Black Death for this book. And this is a disease that's creeping up on these people. As you've already said, you know, some people don't even necessarily believe that it's happening. But this is a thing that it is the end of the world to this community. They have no understanding of you know where it's come from, how it's transmitted, what to do about it, you know how to deal with it, whether or not you know you can survive it. It's unimaginable to me how society would have dealt with this threat. Well, yeah, um, well, <laughs> I had to imagine it, and uh, I mean something I discovered many years ago when um, I occasionally got sent by the newspaper I was working for to cover wars was that when you're far away from a war situation it seems quite terrifying and the main aspect of the terror is that you just have no idea what you're going to find um and as you say it's quite hard to imagine how it all fits together and the closer you get the more it breaks down into smaller and smaller elements until you finally get to the place where the war is and you're dealing with matters moment by moment. So you're not looking from above at this great panorama. You're just in a car and somebody's shooting at you or um, more likely you're in a car waiting at a, at a checkpoint and not being allowed through. And that's the problem you have to deal with at that moment. And that's the thing that you observe, the, what's going on around you. So uh, I suppose I, I took that attitude to the Black Death that these characters don't see the big picture. There's a scene early on when they're in the, uh, in the Malmesbury Abbey um, and this doctor um, is telling them in, in medieval terms, um, he's giving them a briefing basically on the, on the plague um, and also incidentally trying to sell them his, um, his, his package of personal medicine. So that's, that's as far as it goes in terms of the big picture and it comes and goes. And, and then you actually encounter the Black Death, and, and I, I tried to do it just, it comes bit by bit. Yes, there is a, a point where they briefly see um, a large number of bodies. I try not to dwell on it. And then lots of people begin to die, but each person dies in their own way, in their own place, and every individual only sees what they see. I don't, I'm not pulling back the camera, as it were, um, and, and roaming over, getting a sort of drone footage of, um, of the streets. So, I mean, there are also particular problems with a book about a nasty epidemic because it can very, very quickly become 
sort of gothic descriptions of, of pustules and boils. And I tried to avoid any of that kind of thing. Although, uh, God knows there were plenty of pustules and boils in that thing in, in, at that time. The biggest problem was simply that um, your characters have to, have to die. And that's terrible. You've built up these people. You've, you've come to like them, even the horrible ones. And then you have to sort of pick names from a list. It's horrible. But then you realize, I can't keep doing this because it's, in a simple way, it's going to be repetitive. But also it's, it's this sort of emotional bludgeon for the readers because um, one of the, the ways that the book was always intended to be structured is that Thomas, the clerical character, who is not a priest, he's not an ordained priest, he just he knows how to read and write, he knows Latin, uh, he knows about religion, but he's not a priest that he is, has been sort of attached to these um, archers who are on their way to Calais as um, a sort of standby uh, confessor so that they don't die unconfessed um, because the leader of the archers does believe in, in the play and more than believing it, he's counting on it. So I thought, well, I can't just keep having death and confession. That is going to be terrible. Nobody's going to want this. So I had to find ways around that. It, it's uh, yeah. It, it, I, I did find ways around it, but I, I, I realised that you can't just have this this procession of death. So I've, I've tried to avoid the uh, the extreme grisliness without it seeming as if I'm averting my eyes from something horrible. But also tried to avoid that sort of um, doleful um, beat of death. And um, but again, without losing that that sense of of loss, which must have been so. So enormous and terrible at that time. I must admit, as a you know, a twenty first century atheist, some of the parts of the book I found most most suspenseful were the you know, the dying moments of some of the characters and whether or not they would be absolved or forgiven or, you know, whether they would, you know, enter the kingdom of heaven with their you know, with their soul intact. It was entirely believable to me. There were a lot of um confessions. Um, well, I've converted you to Christianity. For, for an atheist, that's that's a pretty good day's work. Um, there was a lot of changes of, uh, around confession at this time. It was a big preoccupation of of the church because about 150 years earlier, they'd completely changed the whole setup. Prior to that, confession was a sort of a communal thing, and the priest would just say to the congregation, "You're all a terrible bunch of sinners. Do you repent?" And the congregation would say, "Yeah, yeah, we repent." And it was only in the early 13th century, that they said, OK, we're going to completely change it. From now on, every single person, the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, must confess personally once a year to a priest. So for the first time, it was a sort of the whole invention of, of psychotherapy, the, the psychology, the, the, the thinking about feelings and uh, one's relation to the things that one had done that were perhaps not good. It all began then, and... For the 150 years leading up to the time of the plague, uh, you had this huge effort by the church to try and get its priests, some of whom, you know, could barely speak a word of Latin or couldn't read, to get its priests to kind of rise to the the level that this uh, this new setup seemed to seem to demand. So they, they churned out these these books where they they gave advice to the priests on on how to take confession. And it's all very revealing about the, the quite complex attitudes towards sin. According to the, the sort of the tariff, you know, you, you were going to hell pretty much every time you blew your nose in the Middle Ages. And you could, there's a famous flowchart that some witty modern professor did of when you can have sex in the Middle Ages. 
And and the answer is almost never, technically, you know. So um, on the face of it, it was just incredibly strict, this absolute straight jacket. But the reality was much more one of of forgiveness and not wanting people in their last hour to feel that they were going to to hell or to be stuck in purgatory for thousands and thousands of years just because they'd stolen a blanket or, or because they'd slept with somebody else's wife. I think if it's if I've done it right, it's much more about the um, the confessee's own journey into what they have done than into the the confessor trying to twist something out of them. Can I get you to read us a little bit? Yes, to finish? I will. In this section, the uh, three of the um, of the archers have arrived. In um, uh, they're called Mad, Sweetmouth, and Will have arrived with their commander, uh, who is a, a young nobleman called Lawrence, at a pageant where they are to enact the Romance of the Rose before, um, before an audience. Uh, the archers um, have agreed to stand in for actors because the parts that they're needed for call for um, people who have some skill with a bow and arrow. So um, here they are arriving at the, at the encampment where this, uh, this great festival is to be, is to be held. And there's a word here, teld, which is the Middle English word for tent. The Burman went up a kind of street between two rows of telds, crowded by sellers who would have them buy bunches of heartsees, baby aquins and squabs in wicker baskets, puddings, eels, brad on the gleeds, saffron cakels, pomanders, clogs, silver tokens and rattles. They came to a long teld where they were told to stow their gear. Inside a glee man walked to and fro on his hands, with his dog following on two legs, and another kept five fish balls in the air at once. Sweetmouth asked him why he used fish balls, and the gleeman said, It was Friday. Would he have him juggle with meat? In the teld was a board, and around it a heap of high-born young men with soft hair, with dear knives on their belts and with clothes that were both old and dear, like to they'd show they had much silver, but would that all knew they ne cared whether they had it or no. They chid each other, and struck with their fingers a little wad of calfskin on the board, held by a bold, weary man with a feather behind each ear. Otherwise, one of the young men would snatch at the calfskin, and the penman would bark and hurr at him and grip the calfskin tighter. Behind the penman, still, his arms folded, stood a long, dark fellow with a wide, flat hat of which a peacock feather drooped. He wore a shirt of the same hue as the eye of the peacock feather and looked on the young men like to he'd found a nest of rats in his barn and only sought to be sicker the last had shown its neb before he stirred himself to set the dogs on them. Maestro Pavone, called Lawrence, all around the board stilled and turned their heads. Here are the archers for your revels. If they please you, I claim my part. The other young men hooted and whistled and laughed. The penman set his chin on his hands and stared at the bowman. Maestro Pavone came out from behind the board and nigh them. Hinea knit his arms but stuck out his lower lip and stood so near they could smell a windy stink of seeds of heaven and spring blossoms of his smooth skin. He came up to Sweetmouth, so near their noses almost felt each other. You'd be a player, would you? he said. Stick out your tongue. Sweetmouth did as he was told. Wag it up and down, side to side. You have a grand tongue, he shuddered. It is very horrible. Sweetmouth said he knew what horrible meant. Horrible is what us needs, said Pavone. He lifted his steven and showed his teeth. 
When you see a belle demoiselle, all you do is speak evil of her. Sweetmouth said it wasn't true. You know aught of truth, evil tongue, said Pavoni. He wrothed and darkened. The first thing you think of when you see a woman is how to blacken her name in the minds of others. They knew what you were about when they set you to guard the rose. Lying wretch, she mayn't take a little sun on her cheek without that you spread a tale of how she and the sun be lovers. You mayn't love and mayn't bear that others love. And so you use your tongue to foul all that's fair and true. No more. With a shout, he drew his knife and dashed it over Sweetmouth's mouth and with his other hand snatched at a deal of flesh between Sweetmouth's lips. Red ran down between his fingers, and he lowered his blade and held out Sweetmouth's thundered tongue for all to see. The young men laughed and clapped their hands together. Sweetmouth's mouth hung open, his jaw slack. May you speak? said Pavoni. Sweetmouth said slowly and weakly that it had seemed to him he felt the smart as his tongue was shift of its root. Yet... It was still there. The knife is true enough, but it never touched you, said Pavoni. The red's a cloth of Italy we use. It runs of the hand like to the fall of blood. Here's your tongue, a piece of old leather. When you play the part tomorrow, you'll have it in your mouth. He came to mad and nipped his black curls between his fingers. Who do you think you may be, he said. Mad said Pavoni should tell him who he might be, and he would tell him if he were right. Methinks you might be the god of love said Pavoni. Mad said, maybe he was the god of love, but how could he be sicker? You'd have wings like to an angel, said Pavoni, but we may lend you some if you like them. I'll borrow, said Mad. I left my wings at home in Merioneth. You'd be able to shoot five arrows at a big much heart and not miss once. I may do that, be the heart right much, and there'd be in you some lore that those who watched you might know without words, for yours is not a speaking part. Mad began to sing a song without words. It was sweet and sad. Who learned you that? asked Pavone. Queen Guinevere, said Mad. Pavone laughed. I knew you from the start, he said. You may play the god of love. Pavone came to Will. He stared in his eyes and Will stared back until Pavone turned to Lawrence. This one comes with a mask already on, he said. Where'd you find him? He's new, said Lawrence. He was a plowman till three days ago. And tomorrow he will be Venus, who only shoots two arrows, but they must not miss their mark. Your arrows ne miss, do they, Venus? Answer, said Lawrence. My arrows ne miss, said Will. Sweetmouth said he had an ask. Might they, as players, go hop to the pipes on the green? Listen, between you, the common soldiers, and you, the nobles, lies a cleft unbridgeable, said Pavoni. You soldiers are of the dirt and the dung heap. You live of one day to the next, and aren't worth no more than the bread and ale you've been fed with. You haven't no wit but what you need to drive a plough and shoot an arrow, and that which goads you to breed, eat, get drunk, beat each other, and find a warm stead to sleep. And you, nobles, who are so much higher, all you have is dreams and clean fingernails and bitterness, that the money you got of your fathers is never enough to cover the promises you got of your mothers. Here you are, yearning to go out of your kind, to step through the golden curtain into the estate of play, where anyone may be another, and all may speak to anyone. Men, I ask that when you're in my domain, you set your ranks aside. Maestro, said the penman. Here, said Pavone, the sweet mouth, we nay hop. Toads hop. He set himself down on his hams, puffed out his cheeks, and hopped like a toad. He stood. 
Here, he said, we dance. He went up to Will and set the flat of his open right hand against the flat of Will's open right hand while he looked into Will's eyes. Follow me, he said, and began to step and turn his hips from side to side. Here, he said, there is no hopping, and Maestro Pavone will dance with Venus. So I've been talking to James Meek. We've been talking about his latest novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. James, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 